a habit across all church congregations, I think, that we don't notice um, the people that kind of facilitate our gatherings. We don't notice the people that um, are running the sound or the slides or, or things like that until something has gone wrong. Um, and so I just want to stop and say, hey, thanks, Max. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Barry, for all the work that you guys do um, in facilitating our gatherings. You guys are great, and uh, we super appreciate you. Um, huh? Yeah, and Sarah sometimes fills in, and it's great, and it's wonderful, and we appreciate you too. You're not sitting back there today, though, so that's why I overlooked you. Literally overlooked you. Looked over you to the people in the booth. Okay. <laughs> anyway, good morning, church. She's got a mouthful of jello. She's not hollering today. Uh, welcome to our neighbors. I'm glad to be with you. <laughs> um, we're going to start a new series this morning, and it, the astute of you, the, the observant, the scholars of you will be able to gather what our new series is called. It's called Regifting. And you think, wow, that's kind of a weird thing to talk about. Um, regifting doesn't have a, the best reputation. So if you're not familiar with this, the idea of regifting is uh, if you have received a gift that maybe isn't what you wanted, or maybe isn't something that you like, or maybe isn't like consistent with your vibe, I don't know. If you receive a gift from somebody that you don't want, and instead of like opening it and trying to figure out a place to put it in your house or, or trying to uh, incorporate it into your life, instead of doing all that, like incorporating it into the garbage can, you rewrap it and then give it as a gift to somebody else. So you have received a gift you didn't want, and then you give it away to somebody else um, as, as a gift. That is the idea of re-gifting, and uh, it kind of has a bad rap. Waited all week to be able to say that. Regifting has a bad rap, but I wonder why it has a bad rap. Um, I think there might be two reasons. Um, there are probably more, but these are the two that I kind of want to talk about this morning. One might be a perception issue, and I'm going to spend some time this morning to try and uh, help us get a different perception, a different perspective on the idea of regifting. Um, but the second is, doesn't doesn't regifting say something about the relationship between the giver and the receiver? Doesn't regifting say something about the relationship between the giver and the receiver? So if the receiver, so in the first instance, the first gifting, if the giver gives a gift that the receiver didn't want, that says something about the relationship, doesn't it? Like, you don't, oh, you don't actually, you don't know that this is hideous, and I would never put this on my wall. Or you don't know that, like, purple is my least favorite color. Not, not like, this is hypothetically, of course. Um, but, so I would not wear this, these kind of clothes. Like, there's something about, there's a disconnect in the first relationship. Then, it says something about the second regifting. It says, like, okay, I got this thing that I didn't really want, and you know what, instead of me trying to figure out what to do with it, I'm just going to pass the buck to you. There's a devaluing of that second relationship, too, to say, like, I didn't even put any thought into thinking about what I was going to get for you. I didn't put any thought into, into how you might receive it, maybe. Um, but it's like, yeah, I got some leftovers. This is the stuff I kind of really didn't want to deal with, and so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass it off to you. Regifting says something about the relationship between the giver and the receiver in, in both instances, right? Are we, we track? Have I lost you already? Oh, gosh, here we go. Um, well, we're going to need... Uh, <laughs> 
as we, as we explore this idea of regifting, um, we're going to talk about that relationship dynamic and we're going to talk about the perception dynamic as we go on. Um, but before we do, we obviously are going to need the spirit to be here among us and moving and, uh, and speaking clearly. So let's pause together and let's pray. Um, and I just invite you to pray with me as I open up uh, the disciples' prayer. This is the model of prayer that Jesus left for us. Um, not, that we, uh, not that it's a magic formula, not that it does anything special, um, but that these are the ideas that Jesus wanted for us to use in our conversations with God. And it's most helpful if we're going to pray them together to just use the same word. So that's why they're on the screen. Um, I'd invite you to pray with me out loud if you'd like to, but if not, would you at the very least bow your hearts with me and let's begin. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you begin by opening with me to the book of John, the gospel of John, sometimes called, um, and I don't even know what page it's on yet, because I also am going to be turning there. John chapter 1, I hear from the crowd, it's 1106 in these blue Bibles, and that word was true, has been tested. John chapter 1, the book of John chapter 1. There's a couple of books in the text named after John. This author is the Apostle John um, and was one of the closest friends of Jesus. Um, Jesus had 12 disciples, had 12 followers, had 12 men who followed him and tried to learn his way. He had three of his disciples who were um, considered closest. They were like his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And John the Apostle was probably Jesus' or or was one of Jesus' closest friends. And so he decided that he was going to write a biography about the life of Jesus. Um, And his biography, we have four biographies about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, And his biography was probably the last one that was written down. So he got to, he had the benefit of knowing that there were other biographies around. He thought, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm closest, I was maybe the closest to him, let me write something down here. And it seems like he wrote it kind of towards the end of his life. Because he doesn't just tell the history, he doesn't just tell the facts of the details of what happened, he also begins to interpret things. And so when he opens his biography, he doesn't just start with Jesus' lineage, his his background, which um, Matthew and Luke both do. He starts with the theological implications of Jesus' arrival to the earth. Um, Sometimes I like to call him Crazy Uncle John, because the way he talks sometimes, you're like, "What what what are you talking about? Um, So Crazy Uncle John, he does not pull any punches when he opens up his biography about Jesus. He says, look, Jesus showed up, it changed the world, and I'm going to give you the theological ramifications, the big deal, big idea ramifications of why that matters. Um, So in John chapter 1, I'm going to begin by reading those first five verses. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Um, so that's, that's his opening. He says, in the beginning was the word. And you guys are like, what do you mean in the beginning was the word? I don't what do you mean, the word? Um, this idea that he's addressing is actually a really common one to the people that he was first writing to. So in the first century, as John is writing this biography, he looks for an idea in the culture that people are going to pick up and they're going to understand immediately. And he's going to say, this idea actually points to Jesus. So the idea he picks up is the word, the logos. Um, is the Greek word for it. And the, and the Greek philosophers were all about the logos. The logos was the order of creation. The logos was the way things got set in order. It was the wisdom by which creation was made. And everybody, Greek, pagan, whatever deity you might call yourself to worship, um, everybody understood this idea of the word. It was the foundational principle of all of creation. And that's where John starts. He says, look, you guys have this idea. You have this idea in your culture about what God is. And in the beginning was the word. Nobody in his day is going to disagree with that. And the word was with God. Okay, the idea was that God made the world by his word, by the logos. He ordered everything by it. It was kind of the framework. It was the Excel sheet by which all of creation got inputted. But then he says, and the word was God. Uh, that's something new for people. In the beginning was the word. Okay, the word was with God. Okay, fine. God had a plan for how he worked everything out. The word was God. God did not establish creation just by making it, um, just by making a proclamation, just by writing an Excel sheet. He actually established creation by a person, and that person is part of himself. The word was God. It's the same thing. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So anything that exists, all of creation, everything that happens, happened through the word. The word made it all. In him was life, and life was the light of men. So he has both life and light, uh, the revelation, being able to see, being able to understand, being able to perceive. All of those things come from the word. Um, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is an interesting idea, and it's, it, it is kind of buried in these big ideas that we're kind of grappling to understand, like we're trying to get our heads around it, and there's this little idea kind of tacked at the end. But this is, I think, something that's really interesting and is going to inform how we interact with the rest of the text. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, we are familiar with the darkness. We're, we're born into a dark world. We see darkness um, on, on the news everywhere. We see darkness in our families when things are going wrong. Like darkness is something that we're familiar with. And sometimes it seems like darkness is the overriding power at work in our world. We actually, part of our discussions going through the book of Daniel over the last couple of weeks and months has been identifying like darkness seems like it's winning, right? And yet, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What is the source of darkness? Perhaps, perhaps it's the devil, the, the source of darkness. Like, let's, let's take it out of the spiritual realm. If you want to make a room dark, if we wanted to make this room dark, what would be the thing we would bring in to be the source of darkness to make the thing dark? We couldn't add something to make something dark. We would have to remove the light. 
There is no source of darkness in all of creation. It doesn't exist. Darkness is merely the absence of light. So if a light source walks into a room, the darkness is dispelled. Even if, even if we blacked out all the windows in this room, shut out all the lights, made it so that no light could come in, as soon as we lit the smallest candle, all of us would be able to see. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. There is no source of power for the darkness. There's an idea that's common in our culture, and maybe it's, it's in our heads, too, and maybe it's in our hearts, that, that there are, there's a battle between good and evil, and it's an even match. That, that God and the devil are at war and like they both are, are really, really powerful. They're opposites of each other and they have to be kept in balance. That's not what it is. The only thing that, that exists is God and his light and anything that is the absence of him is corrupted. But as soon as you bring him into the picture, he shines his light throughout the whole thing. There is no source of darkness. It's only the absence of light. So when Jesus, the word, comes into the world, he creates the world, he makes everything light, he makes everything good, and as the, as the creation turns and rejects him and wants to move away from him, they try to block the light out, that's when things become dark. It's the absence of him that makes things dark. Um, the word is light and life to all. He's the agent of creation. He makes everything. Everything that exists... Our flesh and bones, the chairs, the air that we breathe, the earth that we walk on, the water that we drink, um, the, the atomic material that holds us together, up to the celestial things, the, the gravity that keeps all of everything that we know existing and spinning, all of these things come from the Word. And yet we like to think that our life is about us. And we like to think of ourselves as the center of the universe. And yet, everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. Um, James, in chapter 1, the half-brother of Jesus, says that every good gift comes from God. And, and, and Paul, as he's writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, um, says, if everything that you have is a gift... Why do you act like it isn't? If everything you have you've received as a gift from somebody, whether you earned it or not, it came through. It was, you didn't create anything. None of us have said a word and a thing came into existence. If I could say pile of gold and there was a pile of gold here, then, then like that would be something. But I cannot make a pile of gold. I can go and I can find it. I can dig it out of the earth and I can take it from that which has already been created. I cannot make anything by myself. Right? Everything is a gift. Do we behave as though every moment of our life is a gift from God? If, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to read you something that's not scripture but has been meaningful in my life. This is a, a song. Uh, it's just called Beggars. Uh, it's by, uh, the words are by uh, Dustin Kinsrew. The band is called Thrice. All you great men of power... You who boast of your feats, politicians and entrepreneurs, can you safeguard your breath in the night while you sleep? Keep your heart beating steady and sure? As you lie in your bed, does the thought haunt your head that you're really rather small? If there's one thing I know in this life, we're beggars all. 
All you champions of science and rulers of men, can you summon the sun from its sleep? Does the earth seek your counsel on how fast to spin? Can you shut up the gates of the deep? Don't you know that all things hang as if by a string over the darkness, poised to fall? If there's one thing I know in this life, we're beggars all. And all you big shots that swagger and stride with conceit, did you devise how your frame would be formed? If you'd be raised in a palace or live out on the streets, did you choose the place or the hour that you'd be born? Tell me, what can you claim? Not a thing. Not your name. Tell me if you can recall just one thing that's not a gift in this life. Can you hear what's been said? Can you see now that everything's grace after all? If there's one thing I know in this life, we're beggars all. Do we behave as though every moment of our life is a gift? Does that feeling of smallness overwhelm us? Don't we wish that it wasn't that way? <laughs> Isn't there something in us that says, no, I must have more significance than just to be a pale blue speck floating in the darkness of space? There's something built in us that desires eternity. There's a deception that makes us think that we have control over it, but that longing is embedded in our hearts from the very beginning. And I hope as we go through the rest of this passage that we'll discover together, the only hope that will fill our longing is Jesus' generous humility. Let's continue reading together in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, um, these first verses here, uh, in verses 6 through 8, there's an introduction of John the baptizer. And that is not helpful for our conversation, um, but as the Apostle John, these are two different Johns, as the Apostle John is telling his story, he's going to need to introduce John the baptizer to tell the rest of his chapter. Um, but that's not pertinent to exactly what we're talking about here. Um, in verse 9, the true light which gives light to, the, to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. What happens What happens in, in the morning when it's dark, uh, maybe the wee hours of the morning, and, and you're in, 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 the, um, in the throes of, of REM sleep, and there's a small child that suddenly needs your attention? And, and what happens when they barge into your room and flip the light on? How do your eyes react to a sudden burst of light in the darkness? <laughs> it is painful. A light, when you are accustomed to the darkness, is painful. And the creator who made everything good 
And then that good creation rejects God and tries to spend the rest of its time trying to wall itself off and protect itself from its creator that tries to shut out the darkness that is duct tape over the windows. We don't want the creator in here. We need our darkness. We want darkness. We'd rather have darkness. When the light walks back into the room, it hurts. Jesus comes into the world and the world did not know him even though the world was made through him. I made all of this and you guys are rejecting me. He came to his own people, but they did not receive him. Uh, that's a hint that the rest of Scripture, the, the first part of Scripture, the largest section of Scripture that we sometimes call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that tells a story that's actually significant to us understanding Jesus. When it says Jesus' own people didn't receive him, like there's a background to that. We've seen some of it in the book of Daniel, but it's part of a huge tapestry, a story of God's grace that he weaves throughout all of Scripture. And that the, the Savior of the world, the Savior of the Jewish people in particular, did not receive him. They didn't recognize him. But to all who did receive him, all who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. People who were born... Of God, not born of blood or the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. Um, the song, <laughs> the song asked the question: um, Did you get to choose whether you'd be raised in a palace or whether you'd live out on the streets? Did you choose the place or the hour you'd be born? I suspect if we could do a re-roll, <laughs> uh, if we could do a re-roll on our parents, perhaps, how many of us would take that opportunity? <laughs> Yo, give me, give me another set. Like this, I, okay, let me try again. Let's, let me see how this plays out. Like if we, could, if we could do that, if we had that opportunity, perhaps, perhaps maybe even the majority of us would want a different set of parents. And yet that's not a choice that we had. We got born into the family we got born into and then we just had to deal with it, right? And John, the apostle, says of Jesus, he came into the world to people who did not understand him. He came to his own family and they rejected him. And yet, for those who did not reject him, he gave them the opportunity to be called children of God, to be belonging into his family, not by blood, not by the will of man, not by the will of the flesh, not just because of a passionate desire in the night, but to be born of God. Whether you were here, quote-unquote, on purpose because your parents wanted you, or quote-unquote, on accident, because they didn't, God is here to redeem you. This is a, a point that I think our culture has forgotten. God is the one who makes babies. We become accustomed to the darkness. And when the light comes in, it's blinding to us. And even for those of us that like, have come to a place where we want to walk with Jesus, there's times where he starts to shine his light in the dark corners of our life, and we're like, yo, 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 you don't need to see that. You don't need to be there. That's not what I want for you to do. And yet, Jesus shines his light for our good, for our benefit. If he made everything good, and now he's trying to restore it to goodness, then when he shines his light in the dark places of our lives, it's for our benefit. Will we believe that Jesus' light is good for us? Our, our, our natural inclination since the fall 
is to say, no, that's not good. I'd be better off if you just leave that corner of my world alone. And yet Jesus comes in and says, I need to redeem this too. You're blocking out the light here. And it will not work properly unless it works the way that I designed for it to work. It's a grace and it's a kindness that he shines his light. And will we believe that Jesus' light is good for us? The only hope, the only hope that will fill our longing for eternity is Jesus' generous humility. What do you mean generous humility? Let's read one more passage here. In verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of, of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So I'll, I'll say here again, verse 15 is helpful for understanding the rest of the chapter. As, as the Apostle John wrote his biography, he's going to talk a lot about John the Baptizer going on. Um, but that's not necessarily our focus here together this morning. Jesus moved into his creation. The word became flesh. If you've been around church a lot, um, then perhaps this idea is going to be familiar to you. We talk about this around Christmas time pretty regularly. The word became flesh um, and moved in. Uh, moving is, is, is never an easy process. It always costs more than we thought. It always costs more financially. It always costs more time. It always costs more energy. Like, I think if we actually had a good accounting of, of what it was going to cost to move, we maybe never would. And yet, Jesus counts the cost and says, I'm moving into their neighborhood. I'm, I'm, I'm going to dwell among them. Infinite logos, creator who, who by his word speaks and things become, he says, a pile of gold, and there's a pile of gold. Like, as he speaks, these things are great. He says, I am going to leave the heavenly realms, and I am going to enter into earth. I'm going to confine myself to a physical body, not a body of a mighty king, the strongest warrior. We've seen his, his presence before um, showing up in, in Daniel chapter 7. He's described as the son of man, and he's radiant, and he's powerful. We see him described in, in chapters 10 through 12 of Daniel, the man clothed in linen, and he's difficult to look at. He's shining bright. He's strong. He's mighty. And yet that pre-incarnate, that before the incarnation, that before he became flesh, Jesus took his might and his power and his authority and he confined it to a womb, a fetus. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to wrap my head around that. Divinity, fully God, took on flesh. Mortal flesh. We read together from Philippians chapter 2 that he who was in the palaces of heaven humbled himself to come and arrive on earth and then submitted himself to the abuses of the darkness, submitted himself to death, even the most humiliating, excruciating death that was available to the time, death on a cross. 
There was nothing wrong in his previous neighborhood. Sometimes we move so that we can get to a better neighborhood, right? Like, you know, like, the crime's kind of bad here. I need, to, I need to go somewhere safer. So we moved to a different neighborhood. That, that was not Jesus' thing. There was no crime. There was no problem. There was no pain. There was no tears. There, there, there was no, like, neighbor across the street that wouldn't cut their lawn or whose leaves fell into his lawn. Like, there were no problems in the neighborhood where Jesus was before. He's not moving to get a better location. He's not trying to increase the property value and, 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 and uh, bolster his um, real estate portfolio. It's not like that. He had everything. He had a group of angels who acknowledged who he was, who understand, understood his holiness and his purity and told him about it. They were singing songs to him about how great and marvelous and majestic he was, and he's going to come to earth where people don't even get it a little bit. Where people are going to mock him and spit in his face. They're going to disregard the words that he said. The word of God who could speak and create anything beyond our imagination as he would speak. People would say, I don't know about that. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I think I probably know better than that. Bum rabbi. He doesn't even have a place to live. Homeless guy. He wasn't homeless. He left his home to dwell among flesh that we might have a chance to dwell with him. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We know God to the degree that we see Jesus clearly. Uh, that's how the book of Hebrews opens. It says, we know God to the degree that we see Jesus clearly. So whatever it is that comes into your mind when you hear the word God, like that actually says a lot about who you are as a person. But if that idea is not informed by Jesus, then it probably isn't accurate. And what is it that we learn about God when we see Jesus' willingness to leave the heights of heaven, to be born into poverty, into mortality, into frailty? What does that say of his love? What does it say of his justice that he would take his justice upon himself that we might be set free? What does regifting say about the relationship between the giver and the receiver? If all that we have is a gift and Jesus comes to earth in order to bestow upon us a gift, what does that say about that relationship? What does it say about us to look upon that gift and say, I don't know that I need that in my life right now. Maybe I'll get things squared away when I get sick. Maybe I'll start following Jesus when my kids like, start acting out in school and, and then, I, then I need to give them a faith something. What does it say about the relationship between the giver and the receiver if we look at that gift and think, yeah, I don't know, it's probably not good enough. Will we accept Jesus' generous gift? 
But here's the thing. We, we regularly here at Neighborhood Church, we've closed our gatherings every week as far as I can remember since 2014 um, by, by reading together the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority has been given to me. I've got the authority. It's all mine. Everything's mine. I made it, and then all the authority got given back to me anyway. It's just, there's a story there, but we'll just say. I have all the authority. Go therefore, as you're going, as you're living your life, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always. I'm going with you anyway. I'm sending you, but I'm going with you. I've given you this gift. I've bestowed it upon you, and I've given it to you that you might share it with other people. We talked about um, 1 Corinthians 4. I just mentioned it quickly that, that if, you ha- if everything you have has been a gift to you, why do you act like it's not? Paul says earlier in that chapter, in, in the beginning of chapter 4, he says, this is how you should think about us. We're just stewards. God has given us blessings that we can steward it. We can share it with other people. He's entrusted it to us so that we might deliver it to others. Will we accept Jesus' generous gifts and will we share them with our neighbors? Will we be regifting, acknowledging that any gift we might get from God is a good gift? And we actually don't have any ability to generate a gift of our own to share with another person. So if He gives us a gift to share, will we share it? And I don't I don't mean <laughs> My hope is that we don't we don't come to these ideas and now feel guilty like oh I need to be more of a I need to blah, blah. but that we might come to this and say God thanks like thank you I I could have lived my whole life thinking that I was the center of the universe had you not interrupted it and and thank you that you were helping me to see clearly how the world actually works but two understand that He gave you that longing for eternity as a gift too. That desire to actually be more meaningful than a blue speck in the middle of outer space like, is actually a gift as well. And the only hope that we have for filling our longing is Jesus' generous humility. Like, like if we want to distance ourselves from um, the existential dread of a scientific world that says all of the world is meaningless and happenstance, like Jesus says, I am the answer to that. I gave, you, I gave you the problem. I embedded in you the desire to be more and for your life to count for something. And yet I also am the answer. The only hope that will fill our longing is Jesus' generous humility. And so I look at that and go, God, you have been generous to me. How can I be generous with what you've blessed me with? And how can I be humble to share? Not just willing to go across the street in a neighborhood that I'm comfortable with, but willing to go to the bad neighborhoods and say, hey, like this is for you too. Not just going to the bad neighborhoods where it's dangerous to spend time, but maybe even like trying to be nice to super wealthy people and going to the good neighborhoods too. Those are actually harder to have a conversation with. I've been in both. It's harder to convince somebody who has everything that they possibly need, need, air quotes, that the thing that they, the stuff that they have isn't what they need. And yet God's grace would send us to invite our neighbors, any, all of our neighbors across all of Ocala, and that's a wide variety of people, to invite them to meet and follow Jesus. Because the only hope that will fill our longing is Jesus' generous humility. Would you pray together with me? 
God, there's, there's a lot for us to wrap our minds around. To understand some of this is, is logically difficult. Uh, there are mysteries here that are beyond us, and we acknowledge that. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd increase our understanding, our knowledge, but we also ask that you would guide us to help us to grow in wisdom, to know what to do with what we have understood. We thank you for your kindness to us, your generosity. We thank you for your humility. And Lord, seeing that, we, we acknowledge that, that, that you're the only name to be honored above all other names in heaven and on earth or under the earth. Like everywhere we go, the name of Jesus is the greatest name that is. Would you embed that in our hearts this morning? Would you help us to seek your kingdom first? Would you equip us for the work that you want to see done in the world? And Lord, would you give us the faith to trust you, that your ways are good? Would you fill our longing for eternity? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We'll take a few minutes and reflect on how God's speaking this morning. Um, and then we'll close together in singing.